Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. In this session, number 21 of our series, we are going to start on the book of Samuel, which is one of the most important books in the Old Testament when it comes to the critical institutions of ancient Israel. The namesake of this book, the prophet Samuel, is hugely important in the Jewish tradition, but Christianity tends to gloss over him. That's a mistake. Samuel is remembered as one of the great intercessors on behalf of Israel, a kind of old-school prophet around whom miracles happened. He is also remembered for his association with the beginnings of Israelite kingship. There are some interesting events surrounding his birth. For instance, his mother, who had been unable to conceive a child, bore Samuel after being told by the high priest at the temple that God would hear her petition to have a child an oracle, if you will. Following the birth of Samuel, she presents him to the temple and dedicates him to serving God there. If all this sounds just a little bit familiar, that's because we see a general reflection of this in the birth narrative of Jesus as found in Luke. Like Samuel's mother, Hannah, Mary conceives through divine intervention. Also like Hannah, Mary presents Jesus at the temple. These scenes were not chosen at random by the Gospel writer. They were selected specifically to recall the prophet Samuel, who was such an important influence on the people of ancient Israel. Incidentally, one quick note about the books of Samuel. The reason why we have First and Second Samuel is because of the translation of the original book from Hebrew into Greek as part of the Septuagint. Because, unlike Hebrew, Greek uses lots of vowels, the resulting translation was twice as long as the original. It needed two scrolls to contain it, where only one was needed before, hence the two-part version in our Bibles. Prophecy at the close of the time of the Judges was very different from the institution that produced the magnificent literary works of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others of the later divided kingdom and the days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. This time, prophecy was a bit wilder, more spontaneous. Prophecy was a calling, as later, but there was a master-disciple relationship in which a prophet would train up a young person in the prophetic tradition. For example, Samuel was trained by the high priest Eli, and his duties involved priestly functions. Elijah also had a disciple, Elisha, who succeeded him. We don't know the names of the disciples of Isaiah, but it's generally accepted that everything from chapter 40 on through the end of the book was written by disciples of Isaiah that apparently became a school of thought, for lack of a better word, given that its influence lasted from the 8th century into the time of the exile just after Jerusalem's fall in 587 BCE. Prophets also had a habit of roaming around in groups, sometimes called guilds by modern scholars. The Bible refers to these groups as sons of the prophet. At this time, when a central government, and for that matter a centralized religious bureaucracy, did not exist, these prophets filled that gap. 
They served as priests, legalists, judges, rulers, given to ecstatic prophecies growing out of trances or dreams. This is a major distinction between the kind of prophecy and the prophecy of Moses, who actually communicated directly with God. Another important distinction is that these early prophets were less involved in the business of moral teaching and social justice. That came about later. The kind of ecstatic prophecy we see here is known from other sources. Perhaps the most famous is a roughly contemporary account from the Mari texts about one ecstatic who served the god Dagon, and who delivered oracles to the king when he was seized with the power of the deity. We have several other oracles from Mari, such as this one predicting a coming revolt. 2. Zimri Lim, King of Mari. From Shibtu, Queen of the King of Mari. My lord, on the third day of the festival, the prophet Shalibum fell into an ecstatic trance in the temple of the goddess Amunitum, who said, O King Zimri Lim, you will be tested by a revolt. Take special precautions. Surround yourself only with your most beloved and trustworthy officials. Let them stand continuous watch over you. Do not go out alone. I will hand over to you those who will test your rule. However, most divination outside of Israel was more systematic, more on demand. The king of this or that city would ask for an oracle, and the various types of diviners would look at a sacrificial sheep liver or consider the flights of birds or any number of other methods to determine the will of the gods. It was a more bureaucratically inclined system. Interestingly, when Israel developed its own bureaucracy, the personal inspired prophetic voice remained, albeit changed to comport with the new power structure. In a future podcast, we'll discuss divination techniques in the ancient Near East, just because it's really too much fun to pass up. Another remarkable extra-biblical record of an ecstatic prophet was the Dear Allah inscription that was discovered in Jordan in 1967. It mentions one Balaam, son of Beor, the man seeing the gods, who prophesied by dreams. This is very likely the same Balaam ben Peor, mentioned in Numbers 22-24, through 24, who went off script and blessed the Israelites as they came into Canaan when he had been hired specifically to curse them. The Bible uses three terms to describe prophets throughout its history. The earliest was Roeh, usually translated seer. Samuel, the prophet, is called a Roeh. Later, a different word was used to describe someone of the same function, Nabi. This is usually translated as prophet, and is the word used to describe the section of the Hebrew Bible containing the later prophetic works, Nevi'im. The word has its roots in an Akkadian word, Nabu, which means to speak, to call, or to proclaim. So, while a prophet is one who proclaims or speaks, we also have a very convenient passive form of the verb, which means to be called which also applies to the prophetic figures. Samuel also carries the title Ish Elohim, or Man of God. This title applies to other prophetic figures, both early and late. There does not appear to be any special distinction implied by it, other than a special relationship with God. 
Finally, there is the term nozé, which also generally means seer, based on a root meaning to see. The word is used interchangeably with prophet, although it's not typically associated with the other word for seer, roé. It isn't clear what the distinction, if any, existed between those two words. Nozed does show up more frequently in later texts. One of the classic tensions in the Old Testament is that depicted between the prophets and the institutional religious authorities and the royal court. Although we saw this last time, the book of Judges appears slanted towards making the case for adopting a Jewish monarchy. The book of Samuel isn't quite so doctrinaire on that point. We also mentioned last time that Samuel was part of what modern scholars call the Deuteronomistic history, whose overarching purpose is to advance the notion that Israel's failure was due to their shortfall at living up to their covenant obligations. The book of Samuel gives conflicting opinions about whether a monarch is a good idea or a bad idea. Obviously, there is the very clear and present danger of the Philistines, who, in a devastating blow to Israel and her tribal prestige, captured the Ark of the Covenant in battle. Although the Ark proved very capable of looking after itself by inflicting plague and illness on its erstwhile Philistine captors, and secured its own release, one might say, even though the return of the Ark was followed by twenty years of peace, the fact remained that the Israelites got badly beaten by a superior enemy, and a new national governing structure was needed. Prophetic tradition, as recorded in the Bible, was an outside phenomenon. You did have official prophets among the judges, to the extent that there was an official anything. On the one hand, that looseness of Israelite society during the judges allowed tremendous independence and autonomy for individuals, clans, and entire tribes. It was one of the unique distinguishing features of the Israelites, and that was also the problem. The book of Samuel is clear that the current system of ad hoc judges and tribal heroes on demand wasn't working. On the other hand, Samuel is clearly pained at the idea of Israel surrendering their sovereignty to a human king. In 1 Samuel 8, it records God's message to Samuel that makes the turn towards monarchy an explicit rejection of God. Verses 6 and 7. But the thing displeased Samuel, when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. One other reason for prophetic resistance to adopting kingship is that from the beginning the Israelite prophets were opponents of syncretism, that is, adopting the religious beliefs of other foreign nations. Since religion and state didn't have a sharp distinction between them, it's easy to see why the prophets would have seen the monarchy as a kind of gateway drug for foreign religious influences. Sometimes that 
in fact did happen once with Saul, but particularly with Solomon and many subsequent kings. But let's return to Samuel. Although the Israelites do go with a king, Samuel makes sure they have no illusions about what's coming. This classic speech, almost certainly written well after the fact, lays out the abuses of royalty as has seldom been matched in world literature before or since. Now then, listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plough his ground, and to reap his harvests, and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain, and of your vineyards he will give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves, and the best of your cattle and donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out, because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel's own sons, who might have succeeded him according to the usual master-disciple relationship, turned out to be cut, well, not from prophetic timber. Corrupt and self-serving, Samuel rejected them as possible successors or judges. The first king of Israel is Saul, who is a kind of protege of Samuel's. Samuel anoints Saul as king. The term Messiah comes from the word Mashach, which means to anoint. At this time, and for most of Israelite history until the end of the first temple, anointed is not a title but an adjective. It means nothing more than that someone has been designated for a particular task, usually being king of the Israelites. No other ancient Near Eastern culture is known to have designated their kings by this kind of anointing. However, this anointing of Saul by Samuel was a private matter. There is nothing to suggest that this was announced publicly. Saul did assemble and lead an army against the Ammonites and rescued the captured city of Jabesh-Gilead. In recognition of his military skill, the people declared him king by acclamation. The early days of Saul's reign were marked by some odd crossovers between being a king and being a prophet. When Saul meets a group of prophets, the music and the vibe apparently had an effect. He becomes caught up in a prophetic frenzy and engages in eccentric behavior characteristic of the ecstatics. First Samuel 19 verse 14 records, Saul also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? 
Saul started out well enough. He was a competent military leader who fought off the Philistine threat and united the tribes under a strong central rule. But gradually his mentor Samuel became his harshest critic. We see some of the bloodletting that makes some Old Testament readers squirm with good reason. This is how wars were fought back then. They played for keeps. Tension grows between the religious office of the priest prophet Samuel and the political office of the king. One incident in particular takes place as Saul is waiting with the Israelites for the arrival of Samuel, who was scheduled to arrive in a week to offer sacrifices. When Samuel did not show up as expected, Saul performed the sacrifices himself, probably not unlike a judge of former times would have done. Samuel shows up just as the sacrifices were ending and was not pleased. The anticipated battle against the Amalekites, for which the sacrifices were being performed, was bloodily victorious, but Saul didn't kill every single solitary living thing as he was supposed to. He left the king and the best livestock alive. Saul's character began to deteriorate. He took great pleasure in being king, which led in part to his undoing. As king, he could not tolerate rivals or even overly successful underlings. One of these was David, the son of Jesse, who was Saul's armor-bearer and musician. As David insinuates himself deeper into the trust of the members of Saul's court and family, Saul's suspicion and paranoia increase accordingly. Worst of all, David proves himself to be a more effective war leader even than Saul. When the women praise him by singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, it's just too much. Thus begins the weaving of a web of deception and intrigue by which Saul pursues or otherwise pressures David, while David evades but does not directly engage Saul. In some instances, David has the opportunity to kill Saul, but does not. However, he demonstrates to Saul that he had his life in his hands and refused to take it. David's command of the moral high ground is clear, and it forms the basis for a partial reconciliation. We will finish this tale next time as we discuss the reign of King David, but this kind of intrigue is not unusual in the stories of the early kings. Was the monarchy then a good idea or not? If an answer is to be found in the Old Testament, that answer is probably. The stories of Saul's madness are as much about David's competence as they are about Saul's unbalanced state, and for all that, he did what the king was supposed to do, which was to keep Israel more or less safe from encroaching foreign kingdoms. We'll spend some time exploring more about those foreign nations next time. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.